Book Two, Chapter Fifteen, of the Lancashire Witches. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Andy Minter. The Lancashire Witches, A Romance of Pendle Forest, by William Harrison Ainsworth. Book Two, Pendle Forest. Chapter Fifteen, The Phantom Monk. Many hours had passed by, and night had come on, a night profoundly dark. Richard was still lying where he had fallen at the foot of Malkin Tower, for though he had regained his sensibility, he was so bruised and shaken as to be wholly unable to move. His limbs, stiffened and powerless, refused their office, and after each unsuccessful effort he sank back with a groan. His sole hope was that Mistress Nutter, alarmed by his prolonged absence, might come to her daughter's assistance, and so discover his forlorn situation. But as time flew by, and nothing occurred, he gave himself up for lost. On a sudden the gloom was dispersed, and a silvery light shed over the scene. The moon had broken through a rack of clouds, and illumined the tall mysterious tower and the dreary waste around it. With the light a ghostly figure near him became visible to Richard, which under other circumstances would have excited terror in his breast, but which now only filled him with wonder. It was that of a Cistercian monk. His vestments were old and faded, the visage white and corpse-like. Richard at once recognised the phantom he had seen in the banquet hall at the abbey, and had afterwards so rashly followed to the conventual church. It touched him with its icy fingers, and a chillness like death shot through his heart. "'Why dost thou trouble me thus, unhappy spirit?' said the young man. "'Leave me, I adjure thee, and let me die in peace.' "'Thou wilt not die yet, Richard Asherton,' returned the phantom, "'and my intention is not to trouble thee, but to serve thee. Without my aid thou wouldst perish where thou liest.' "'but I will raise thee up and set thee on thy way.' "'Wilt thou help me to liberate Alison?' demanded Richard. "'Do not concern thyself further about her,' replied the phantom. "'She must pass through an ordeal with which nothing human may interfere. "'If she escape it, you will meet again. "'If not, it will be better that thou shouldst be in thy grave than see her.' Take this phial, drink thou the liquid it contains, and thy strength will return to thee. How do I know thou art not sent hither by Mother Demdike to tempt me? demanded Richard doubtfully. I have already fallen into her snares, he added with a groan. I am Mother Demdike's enemy, and the appointed instrument of her punishment, replied the monk in a tone that did not admit of question. "'Drink, and fear nothing.' Richard obeyed, and the next moment sprang to his feet. "'Thou hast indeed restored me,' he cried. "'I would fain reach the secret entrance to the tower.' "'Attempt it not, I charge thee,' cried the phantom. "'But depart instantly for Pendle Hill.' "'Wherefore should I go thither?' demanded Richard. "'Thou wilt learn anon,' returned the monk. "'I cannot tell thee more now. "'Dismount at the foot of the hill, and proceed to the beacon. 
"'Thou knowest it?' "'I do,' replied Richard. "'There a fire was lighted which was meant to set all England in a blaze.' "'And which led many good men to destruction,' said the monk, in a tone of indescribable sadness. "'Alas for him who kindled it! The offence is not yet worked out. But depart without more delay, and look not back.' As Richard hastened towards the spot where he had left Merlin, he fancied he was followed by the phantom, but obedient to the instruction he received, he did not turn his head. As he mounted the horse, who neighed cheerily as he drew near, he found he was right in supposing the monk to be behind him, for he heard his voice calling out, "'Linger not by the way, to the beacon, to the beacon!' Thus exhorted, the young man dashed off, and to his great surprise found Merlin as fresh as if he had undergone no fatigue during the day. It would almost seem, from his spirit, that he had partaken of the same wondrous elixir which had revived his master. Down the hill he plunged, regardless of the steep descent, and soon entered the thicket where the storm had fallen upon them, and where so many acts of witchcraft were performed. Now neither accident nor obstacle occurred to check the headlong pace of the animal, though the stones rattled after him as he struck them with his flying hoof. The moonlight quivered on the branches of the trees and on the tender spray, and all looked as tranquil and beautiful as it had so lately been gloomy and disturbed. The wood was passed, and the last and steepest descent cleared. The little bridge was at hand, and beneath was Pendle Water, rushing over its rocky bed, and glittering like silver in the moon's rays. But here Richard had well-nigh received a check. A party of armed men, it proved, occupied the road leading to Rough Lee, about a bow-shot from the bridge, and as soon as they perceived he was taking the opposite course, with the apparent intention of avoiding them, they shouted to him to stay. This shout made Richard aware of their presence, for he had not before observed them, as they were concealed by the intervention of some small trees. But though surprised at the circumstance, and not without apprehension that they might be there with a hostile design to Mistress Nutter, he did not slacken his pace. A horseman, who appeared to be their leader, rode after him for a short distance, but finding pursuit futile, he desisted, pouring forth a volley of oaths and threats, in a voice that proclaimed him as Sir Thomas Metcalfe. This discovery confirmed Richard in his supposition that mischief was intended Mistress Nutter, but even this conviction, strengthened by his antipathy to Metcalfe, was not sufficiently strong to induce him to stop. Promising himself to return on the morrow, and settle accounts with the insolent knight, he speeded on, and passing the mill, tracked the rocky gorge above it, and began to mount another hill. Despite the ascent, Merlin never slackened his pace, but though his master would have restrained him, held on as before. But the brow of the hill attained, Richard compelled him to a brief halt. By this time the sky was comparatively clear, but small clouds were sailing across the heavens, and at one moment the moon would be obscured by them, and the next burst forth with sudden effulgence. These alternations produced corresponding effects on the broad, brown, heathy plain extending below, and fantastic shadows were cast upon it, which it needed not Richard's heated imagination to liken to evil beings flying past. 
The wind, too, lay in the direction of the north end of Pendle Hill, whither Richard was about to shape his course, and the shadows consequently trooped off towards that quarter. The vast mass of Pendle rose in gloomy majesty before him, being thrown into shade, except at its crown, where a flood of radiance rested. Like an eagle swooping upon his prey, Richard descended into the valley, and like a stag pursued by the huntsman, he speeded across it. Neither dyke, morass, nor stone wall checked him or made him turn aside, and almost as fast as the clouds hurrying above him, and their shadows travelling at his feet, did he reach the base of Pendle Hill. Making up to a shed, which, though empty, luckily contained a wisp or two of hay, he turned Merlin into it, and commenced the ascent of the hill on foot. After attaining a considerable elevation, he looked down from the giddy heights upon the valley he had just traversed. A few huts, forming the little village of Barley, lay sleeping in the moonlight beneath him, while further off could be just discerned Goldshaw, with its embowered church. A line of thin vapour marked the course of Pendle Water, and thicker mists hovered over the mosses. The shadows were still passing over the plain. Pressing on, Richard soon came among the rocks protruding from the higher part of the hill, and as the path was here not more than a foot wide, rarely taken except by the sheep and their guardians, it was necessary to proceed with the utmost caution, as a single false step would have been fatal. After some toil, and not without considerable risk, he reached the summit of the hill. As he bounded over the springy turf, and inhaled the pure air of that exalted region, his spirits revived, and new elasticity was communicated to his limbs. He shaped his course near the edge of the hill, so that the extensive view it commanded was fully displayed. But his eye rested on the mountainous range on the opposite side of the valley, where Malkin Tower was situated. Even in broad day the accursed structure would have been invisible, as it stood on the further side of the hill, overlooking Barrowford and Colne. But Richard knew its position well, and while his gaze was fixed upon the point, he saw a star shoot down from the heavens, and apparently a light near the spot. The circumstance alarmed him, for he could not help thinking it ominous of ill to Alison. Nothing, however, followed to increase his misgivings and ere long he came in sight of the beacon. The ground had been gradually rising, and if he had proceeded a few hundred yards further, a vast panorama would have opened on him, comprising a large part of Lancashire on the one hand, and on the other an equally extensive portion of Yorkshire. Forest and fell, black moor and bright stream, old castle and stately hall, would have then been laid before him as in a map but other thoughts engrossed him, and he went straight on. As far as he could discern he was alone on the hilltop, and the silence and solitude, coupled with the ill report of the place, which at this hour was said to be often visited by foul hags for the performance of their unhallowed rites, awakened superstitious fears in his breast. He was soon by the side of the beacon. The stones were still standing as they had been reared by Paslew, and on looking at them he was astonished to find the hollow within them filled with dry firs, brushwood, and faggots, as if in readiness for another signal. In passing round the circle his surprise was still further increased by discovering a torch, and not far from it, in one of the interstices of the stones, a dark lantern. 
in which, on removing the shade, he found a candle burning. It was now clear that the beacon was to be kindled that night, though for what end he could not conjecture, and equally clear that he was brought thither to fire it. He put back the lantern into its place, took up the torch, and held himself in readiness. Half an hour elapsed, and nothing occurred. During this interval it had become dark. A curtain of clouds was drawn over the moon and stars. Suddenly a hurtling noise was heard in the air, and it seemed to the watcher as if a troop of witches were alighting at a distance from him. A loud hubbub of voices ensued. Then there was a trampling of feet, accompanied by discordant strains of music, after which a momentary silence ensued, and a harsh voice asked, "'Why are we brought hither?' "'It is not for a Sabbath,' shouted another voice, "'for there is neither fire nor cauldron.' "'Mother Demdike would not summon us without good reason,' cried a third. "'We shall learn presently what we have to do.' "'The more mischief the better,' rejoined another voice. "'Aye, mischief, mischief,' echoed the rest of the crew. "'You shall have enough of it to content you,' rejoined Mother Demdike. I have called you hither to be present at a sacrifice. Hidden screams of laughter followed this announcement, and the voice that had spoken first asked, A sacrifice of whom? An unbaptized babe, stolen from its sleeping mother's breast, rejoined another. Mother Demdike has often played that trick before. <laughs> Peace, thundered the hag. "'It is no babe that I am about to kill, but a full-grown maid, ay, and one of rarest beauty, too. "'What think ye of Alice and Device?' "'Thy granddaughter!' cried several voices in surprise. "'Alice Nutter's daughter, for such she is,' rejoined the hag. I have held her captive in Malkin Tower, and have subjected her to every trial and temptation I could devise, but I have failed in shaking her courage, or in winning her over to our master. All the horrors of the vault have been tried upon her in vain. Even the last terrible ordeal, which no one has hitherto sustained, proved ineffectual. She went through it unmoved.' "'Heaven be praised!' murmured Richard. "'It seems I have no power over her soul,' pursued the hag. "'But I have over her body, and she shall die here, and by my hand. "'But mind me, not a drop of blood must fall to the ground.' "'Have no fear!' cried several voices. "'We will catch it in our palms and quaff it!' "'Hast thou thy knife, Mother Mould-heels?' asked Mother Demdike. "'Aye,' replied the other, "'it is long and sharp, and will do thy business well. "'Thy grandson, Jem Device, notched it by killing swine, "'and my good man ground it only yesterday. Take it.' "'I will plunge it to her heart,' cried Mother Demdike, with an infernal laugh. "'And now I will tell you why we have neither fire nor cauldron. "'On questioning the ebon image in the vault "'as to the place where the sacrifice should be made, 
I received the answer that it must be here and in darkness. No human eye but our own must behold it. We are safe on this score, for no one is likely to come hither at this hour. No fire must be kindled, or the sacrifice will result in destruction to us all. You have heard and understood? Oh, we do, replied several husky voices. "'And so do I,' said Richard, taking hold of the dark lantern. "'And now for the girl,' cried Mother Demdike. End of chapter 15